brought to you by Brass and Unity. We make wearable conversation starters. Our new buddy check packs are available now. Grab one and check on one of your closest buddies. They may need it now more than ever. Go to brassandunity.com, use the code UNITY and get 20% off. And let's all heal together. And brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat flip-flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. And brought to you by Daisy May Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. It's not that I'm not smart enough to have this conversation. It's just that when you have somebody the caliber of you sitting in front of me and I have a million questions that I want to throw at you, and I know for a fact some of them are going to include aliens, so just get comfortable, um, <laughs> you know, as well as Mars. And just the fact that I have a Pulitzer Prize winner on the show right now, the chief technology and innovation officer with NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, the creator of Tika, which cracked the Panama Papers, which sure, I mean, just NASA's enough, but keep going. Why don't you make the rest of us feel bad? You, my friend, are one of the smartest individuals I've ever had the pleasure and honor of talking to on the show. Thank you so much for giving us your time, Dr. Chris Matman. You are a very interesting individual. Why, thank you, Kelsey, and thanks for having me on the show. And you're pretty damn interesting yourself, and I'm sure we'll uh, we'll riff off each other. Pleasure to be yeah, here. Yeah, you're, uh, you're, you know, I've, I've, I've done a lot of listening, a lot of... Uh, really a little bit of a deep dive in a way that, you know, when you get a chance to talk to somebody like you, you really want to do it, you know, uh, justice, but it's hard when somebody like you decides that they're not just going to specialize in one field. They're going to go, I'm going to do whatever I want and I'm going to be the best at it. Now watch me do it. And that's what you've done. And you've done it in a way that makes others stand up and take notice because I'm going to go right from the beginning. You kind of had a very rough start, not due to anything that you chose to do, circumstance, mental health, all of the things that happened to us in the world. And I would love to start there if you don't mind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I have no problem. I'm open and talking about this. So yeah, I, I grew up about an hour North of Los Angeles. I was born in LA, uh, County USC hospital. Uh, I think it's why I always have an affinity for Los Angeles, but I grew up in a town called Santa Clarita. Uh, back, you know, when I grew up there, uh, you know, the only thing we could say is it had Magic Mountain. It had the Six Flags of the West, you know, the West Coast uh, amusement park. Uh, I think when I was like 17 or 18, I got a mall, the Valencia Town Center and things like that. But yeah, I, I grew up in a mobile home in Santa Clarita. Uh, and so I grew up, uh, my grandmother raised, I have a brother, it's my brother and I, 
my grandmother helped raise us. My father, um, when I was about, I think, 12 or 13, lost his business. And uh, his, uh, previously, he had a printing business. And uh, yeah, he lost his business. And my mother uh, suffered from uh, paranoid schizophrenia. And she was in and out of the hospital, uh, you know, kind of growing up. And so I tell people, you know, like, um, uh, there were times you could come, you know, just come to my house. My mom was totally normal and, you know, nothing. She's like any other mom. And then there were times you could come to my house and she'd be naked outside getting picked up in 5150 by the police, which is like a emergency mental health hold. Um, and so, yeah, it was a trip, <laughs> you know, is, uh, you know, to experience or, you know, go through that, you know, you definitely build up walls kind of inside you. But for me, uh, I channeled a lot of that energy to, you know, basically making it well to sports and athletics. Um, however, you know, my body didn't uh, keep up with everyone else or with me. You know, I never got past five nine. I tell people, so I have tons of protector buddies. You know, six four, six five football friends, and you know, ran with that type of crowd um, and so forth. But yeah, I I wasn't. You know, I played a little high school football and things like that. But I wasn't big enough to kind of you know play for too long after that. So I channeled that energy into my mind. And uh, was like, yeah, I wanted to be the best at what I was doing. I, I finished high school with a 4.8. Um, I, you know, while everyone else around me was sort of, you know, they wanted to go to the local universities like UCLA and um, Cal State Northridge and stuff. And a lot of them did on like full rides and stuff like that. I made, you know, the decision that I liked uh, the private school that cost way more money than I had or could afford. But I really liked uh, their football team. I like their cardinal gold colors. And that's, I mean, for the, all the wrong reasons, that's the reason I wanted to get the hell out of Santa Clarita and go to USC. And so, yeah, like uh, up until recently, I was still paying that off. But that, yeah, like that, that's how I got into USC. And, you know, lots of imposter syndrome, <laughs> you know, I would say getting there and watching people around me. And, you know, USC wasn't a top 10 or top 15, top 20 school academically at the time. Now it is, but it wasn't back then in, in the US and it was mainly a party school. But, you know, people riding around with their BMWs and their chains and stuff like that were coming. They're talking about, you know, where they summer and all those things. And Where they summer always <laughs> just blows my mind. I summer in the Hamptons. Fuck yourself. Uh, Who talks that way? Oh, lots of people. Lots of people. And uh, lots of people talk that way. And yeah, I, I, yeah, for me, I was, I was just like, what the fuck am I doing here? You know, or, you know, and I, I had a lot of that the first year. And, um, but uh, yeah, I, you know, I had, I had a supportive uncle who lived in Northeast Los Angeles who I could stay at his place every now and then. He still lives there to this day. He's a great sort of, uh, you know, part of our family and stuff. But yeah, I, I just, you know, Kelsey, I had to kind of channel a lot of that stuff and I channeled a lot of it into just different interests and areas, you know, like just speaking of sports, you know, I still do work in sports data science, you know, which we could talk about, but, you know, athletics, um, random occurrence. I was in the computer lab one night, you know, trying to basically look on the job boards. Back then we had bulletin boards for jobs, you know, it was, yes. <laughs> it was, it was bulletin board systems or BBS, you know, I tell people, uh, and yeah, I was looking for a job and, um, that's how I looked into getting the job at JPL. I couldn't have told you about robots or space or anything like that back then, but I knew I needed a job and I knew I was good 
and getting better at programming, um, you know, and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I was up in the computer lab late all night. I applied to a job to help Earth scientists with database programming. I was learning that at USC and pretty pretty decent at that. And uh, that's how I got the initial gig at uh, JPL in 2000. I was the first person in my class at USC in my graduating class to have a, like a full-time job while I was still in school as sort of a sophomore. So yeah. Wow. And then, you know, a lot of it, that was sort of how I got started. So. Okay. So you, you, that's a, I mean, that's a lot on its own. The fact that you end up getting to where you did, there's, you know, with having a parent with schizophrenia, I'm sure that had its, uh, good and it's bad times, but being able to kind of push through that and persevere, not, you know, because of, but that's a, that's its own thing on, you know, that's its own thing. That's just a very difficult one. I know that, you know, schizophrenia is something that, um, does plague quite a few people. And, you know, from a really personal standpoint, I always would wonder about that genetically, um, having that in the family, passing that on, things like that. Was that ever a thought in your mind? I'm getting really deep, really quick. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know you dove down in there. I, Sorry. I, have no problem, I, <laughs> I have no problem talking about it. I, you know, I'm open. I, I did, you know, like people in our family, my wife and I's family brought it up. He's like, do you think you're going to pass that on to your kid? Uh, maybe, you know, I, we did think about that. And, and obviously that, you know, like, it's just, it's just a different, it's just a different vibe when, you know, like you, you try and help somebody and they're hearing voices or they're seeing things and, you know, they're not there and you don't know how to, you know, you don't know how to help them. And a lot of times, you know, like I tell people, like, you want to learn about somebody with schizophrenia and, you know, sorry if this offends people or I say, go watch The Exorcist 3, you know, or go watch a movie like that. Um, because to be honest, like, and it connects it to things like demons or whatever you, whatever mm -hmm. you believe in it, to be honest, crazy shit happened, you know, growing up related to that. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are connections to that, you know, I'm a scientist and I'm saying this on your podcast, but you know, just weird stuff, like where my mom wasn't religious, but when she would go through one of her episodes, she would talk about like Jesus or the devil, it just shit like that. You know, it just like, it didn't make sense. And you know, and so, yeah, like I, I tell people, like, to me, that's the most realistic depiction. And in that movie, just for your audience, in case they haven't seen The Exorcist 3, I won't spoil it for them, but I will just paint the picture. <laughs> Basically, you know, the devil in that movie, um, the way that the devil kind of our demons transport themselves is that they prey on the minds of people in mental illness homes and older people that have things like schizophrenia and so forth. And they kind of take control of them in some ways. And, and if you read about it in the literature and I have and things like that, you know, there's a lot of things related to schizophrenia and demonic possession. If you're, you know, uh, if you've ever read William Peter Blatty's, you know, book, The Exorcist, you know, and things like that. And, you know, there's a lot of connections also in South America, South American culture and things to believing that the two are interrelated. And so, um, just, yeah, just, just stuff like that happened with my mom where it was like these religious undertones and it was scary, man, as a 13 or 14 year old to, to see and hear that type of shit. So yeah, it was, it was hard again, like my brother and I had to build several walls and, you know, again, and I say all this, sorry, I don't want anyone to think my mother was a beautiful person and, you know, she, she passed away in 2019 
but she had lived for many years in a retirement home on her meds where, you know, they semi kind of capitulated her and kept her, yeah. you know, semi-normal and stuff. So it, I love my mother, but yeah, there was some crazy stuff kind of going on with that growing up and it makes you kind of build these internal walls. And um, some people use those things and, you know, genetically on themselves or whatever, it doesn't lead to good outcomes. But for me, I try to harness and focus that energy. So. Well, it sounds like you've done just that. I mean, that is, that's a really interesting correlation that you just brought up there. That's fascinating because there is a lot of evidence in, in different cultures where um, the mental health condition, it can be linked to, you know, demonic type possessions. It's, it's funny that you, you say that in a way because people are going to think whatever they want and that's on them. But the reality is like, that was your reality. <laughs> that's not like, you know, if that's what that, you know, directly looks like, that's just a great example for you to kind of articulate to people because being around somebody with a mental illness can be very hard to put into words sometimes just because of the, um, erratic behavior. But, you know, in some sense it's, it's her mind is free now. So that is my, you know, my happy ending to that for you though, that definitely had to have had an impact. I mean, it seems like you did, you harness exactly what you needed to, to become the person you are. And that's really a fascinating person. And I got to understand you worked, um, at the JPL, you started there, you kind of went up. I know that you did the master's program so you could make more money. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. Back then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, back then, you know, you used to get a raise, you know, at JPL or working if you went and got a graduate degree. And so, yeah, like fresh off of getting my bachelor's, my wife and I soon to be wife had bought a house or were in the middle of buying a house and moving away from the West LA where I had moved to and met her at the time, my senior year. And yeah, we were in the middle of buying a house in Pasadena and yeah, basically I was like, I'm going to take six months off. And, you know, I just finished my bachelor's in computer science. And then it was like, someone told me at JPL, you got a master's, you made like 10 grand more. And I was like, well, I guess I won't take that time off. I'll go back. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I was financially driven because I wanted to support my family. I wanted to, and then I also wanted to provide for my wife, you know, cause she was sort of, you know, uh, she was uh, a little bit older than me and had, gone through kind of community college, but wanted her chance, you know, after supporting me to kind of go to college and finish her college out. And so I felt like I needed to be there and provide, you know, and stuff like that. So yeah, like, I, I mean, and all this to say, uh, and we, we, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but like, I actually got so much value out of getting a master's. And that's actually where I met the guy who would be my sort of research advisor and motivated me to like write and, you know, really care about doing research and science and all that. So it had a lot of very positive outcomes, but yeah, it was financially driven at the time. Yeah. I forgot that you're also an author, which is, sorry, add it to the list. I'm so sorry. I'll take more time next time to go through every accomplishment. That is ridiculous. Oh my God. No it's way. Like most people achieve one of these things in their life. And you're like, let me get my checklist. Let's talk about Tika. How does somebody even begin to develop a program or a piece of technology. How does somebody like, I mean, start truly. If somebody's like, I have this idea, I want to be able to do this. How does somebody even go about building something as powerful as Tika? So, so for me, like, like where, where all that stuff kind of came from was, let's see, how do I, how do I close the gap from like masters and all that? So when I was at, when I was at NASA JPL, like you said, Kelsey, I was sort of rising up. Um, the way I rose up was I got thrown onto like 
these very difficult problems, which, you know, oh, boohoo, you know, me and things like that. But uh, <laughs> we, we, we were, you work at fucking JPL, you know, it's like, who cares? You know, it's going to be difficult. <laughs> cry. <laughs> yeah, right. Cry about it. Uh, you know, and, and yeah, I got, I got thrown on these problems and the world was changing. And I tell people, it's like, okay, go, go to like 2006, 2007. We were about to get the iPhones. Everyone was about to have these amazing devices on them, take upload pictures, put them on social media. So everyone became a sensor. And just think about that in the commercial world and, you know, all of that. And imagine what the government and science and everyone had in terms of their capabilities for that. And then, you know, the way I liken it is like, okay, we had this mission called Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter MRO. It had an instrument on it. Um, God bless you, Kazinte. And uh, this instrument was a camera, and this particular camera on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter took like 12 gigapixel images. And so at the time in 2006, um, they had collected maybe four terabytes, which is a single DVD of NASA planetary data across 40 years of all of their collection at that time, which just gives you an idea of the size and the scale and scope of the instruments. By 2006 or seven, they'd only collected a DVD size worth of data for all of their missions, Voyager, Jupiter, you know, Galileo, all of their projects. So this one mission had a single instrument on it that in a year would generate 280 terabytes of data, which just scale that up. That's something like to the effect of like, 70 times all of the data collected in the 40 years prior from a single instrument on a single mission. And so that was the way the world was. It wasn't just everyone was getting iPhones, everything took more data and all of these things. And so I got thrown onto these projects in which that scale of data was being processed. And then also just the amount of data processing that was necessary to generate all of the pretty pictures and images that people see moved from the realm of like, what we say like tens of jobs per day for data processing into tens of thousands. So similarly to get the data out, you needed like wow. an order of mag magnitude increase in that. And so I was assigned to lead the processing teams and eventually kind of to grow those teams across multiple missions in earth science, you know, at the time, not planetary, it was like earth had a, an even worse problem because earth, all of the satellites and the remote sensings are closer. And so they could get more data back. Whereas in deep space, you know, it's still like a 9,600 baud modem to get the data back, like if it's Mars or so Earth had even a 10 times problem to that. So for a series of Earth missions from about 2005 to 2010, I kind of became the chief architect for building and building all the teams and putting those together for a mission called OCO, the Orbiting Carbon Observatory, a mission called NPP, which was the Next Generation Polar Orbiting Satellites. And then one called SMAP, Soil Moisture Active Passive. And those projects, you know, I built the teams to do that. And, and we built the systems that are still running today that did that. And this is going to answer, sorry for the most long-winded answer your question. No, it's fine. The, the, the idea for Tika came out of that. Because in building those systems that had to process more data, take more data that's generated, distribute it, organize it, all of that. One of the key things that you have are if you have our files. All of these things are still file-based. So you have a PowerPoint file, video files, all this stuff on your desktop. All of these science data systems that we call them generate files too. And when you're generating millions of files, petabytes of data, you know, which is like, you know, the size of an internet 
size of the internet in a day, you know, multiple petabytes, um, you need to organize them quickly. You need to identify the file types. You need to integrate them into search systems. You need to extract text, what we call metadata, which is like all the generation information about the files, who did it, when, all of those things. And you need to do it across multiple languages because it's not just English, but we partner with people in CNES, the space agency there, uh, ISRO, the Indian Space Research Organization, you know, all this. It's not just English. We have to deal with multiple languages. So the idea for Tika came from that. Tika is the digital babble fish. Um, if you're familiar with the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the babble fish is what you put to your ear to understand any language. Uh, okay. uh, Tika is that for files. You give Tika a file, and out the other end, it says, well, what file type is it? And it knows it, and it knows types on the internet, which are thousands of them. And then out the other end, it can extract the text, the metadata, the language information. And then eventually what we say, the people, the places, the things in those files and who did what, when, and where. And uh, so, yeah, that, that all came from NASA and just the evolution of all of these things that were happening in the world with respect to data and processing. So roughly around dark web started in roughly around 2010? Yeah. Um, the technology for the dark web and and the jump there is okay um so so all this stuff is happening on like the public internet science data commercial all the growth of like what we call web one web two social media companies all of that and in parallel and what was revealed by edward snowden in 2012 was that there are lots of other act in all of his leaks of classified information um was that there was a lot of like other programs and other things, as could be expected, that were going on um, that were trying to build similar commensurate capabilities and a new protocol for sharing that type of data in a different way. And so originally out of the Department of Defense, a new protocol kind of was like grown. Um, it was called Tor or the Onion Router. And the idea was for like secure information sharing for people in the battlefield and things like that. And uh, basically, as with all good things that we can't, you know, we can't, we can't have nice things because we, you know, we don't play nicely or others don't play nicely with them. Yeah, we break things. We break things. We, meaning the collective we, earthlings, you know, everyone's bad. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know. There's something uh, for all, everyone out there. <laughs> there's something for everyone out there. And uh, yeah, so, you know, the even badder people got a hold of this and they said, oh, this is a great protocol. This is awesome. And as was revealed by like Snowden and these leaks is like even the US government at the time couldn't crack or get into, you know, information and data that was shared in that way. So they basically, you know, all the people that did bad things like hitmen or that sold people's organs or all the stuff you see in movies, you know, weapons and arms trafficking, human trafficking, you know, counterfeit electronics, all of these things. Um, they they created kind of like a wild west. Hey you, have you checked in with yourself today? How are you doing? How are you feeling? Have you had enough water? This is your midday check-in, brought to you by Midday Squares. Big breath in. <sighs> I'm back at it. Using this protocol to do all of those marketplace transactions on. And that was what it was called, the dark web. That was the dark web, it exists today. Um, in fact, LAUSD, LA Unified School District just got, you know, a big dose of this because hackers hacked into their IT systems and got 
kids' psychological profiles or they got, you know, information about teachers or contracts that they had with different, and then what they did a ransomware where they tried to extract money from LAUSD and they didn't pay it. And so what do they do? They release the information on the dark web. Um, and so that's in the news out here in LA and, you know, somewhat nationally in the U S at this point, but yeah, that's, uh, so Kelsey, that's where that, you know, 2012 ish 2010 to 2012 is where that started to become a real big problem. Oh yeah. I could see that being an issue for that school right now. Ooh, that's some lawsuits. Um, so when you start working on something like Tika, how does, well, I, did you, so you developed it, did you develop it alongside, um, the department of defense? Because how does Tika go to being the, the tool that's cracked the Panama papers? How does that go from, I've made this now we're using this for this. So a weird way, like all of these <laughs> things typically, like all of these things typically do. Um, so, so JPL is part of NASA, the Jet Propulsion Lab. It's also NASA, NASA's national lab, which uh, there, you know, all agencies of the government in the U.S. Uh, typically have these civilian associated laboratories with them in which you can do kind of civilian and also government work. And they're typically centers of excellence to do important things. So like the Department of Energy in the US has like a dozen national labs, Brookhaven, Argonne, Lawrence Berkeley. The Department of Defense itself in the US has national labs, MITRE, uh, Lincoln Labs, you know, Draper Labs, all these things. NASA has one. They have um, Jet Propulsion Lab. And so our first of a kind only things that we do are we run the Mars program and we operate the deep space network, just the deep space internet. Those are the things that aren't available in commercial industry. And so when they're available in commercial industry, we give it to them and we transition it. So like when we can build multiple copies, I say of, if you're familiar with the Jetsons, the sprocket, it's basically sprockets. So when we make, if you can make multiple spacely sprockets, we don't want to do it anymore. We want to do the new kind. Um, and so uh, as in that role, you know, after doing a bunch of these missions, like I said, where the world was changing, all the data processing, everything else is hard. And things like Tika are starting to be invented to kind of help adjust and organize that you learn a lot in that 10 years about what how you can do things better and what i also learned was that the real big dollars at nasa rightly so are to stick poles in mars measure earthquakes to send these beautiful rovers to demonstrate supply chain deep space technology communication launch readiness different capabilities in space ai all these things and to observe the earth, generate new remote sensing products, help, you know, the weather, help mitigate climate change, you know, understand those things. Um, and most of the dollars at NASA are for that. But for me, if you remember, my interest is in database computers, you know, data. Um, and so where you follow the money, where the big money for that is, is in the Department of Defense. And around that time, Obama was the second, it was heading to the second term of the Obama administration. They had something called the Big Data Initiative. Um, they were trying to invest and just like now everyone has like AI initiatives, AI ethics and all that. It was big data back then. And yeah, as a national lab, we can do non-NASA work. And I got involved with the Department of Defense and specifically the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA. And they had some programs. And at the time they, you know, they wanted to combat what they were seeing on the dark web. And I got involved in a program, well, two, one called X data and one called Memex. And basically those programs were 
can you build kind of like open and shareable capabilities for uh, different parts of the government that allow us to get a bulk analysis in a timely fashion of these various bad things happening on the dark web? Um, you know, can you help us thwart or get real time or tactical information on people that were doing human trafficking? Can you do it for arms and weapons trafficking? And you know, I have to remember, I don't know if you remember too, but I think San Bernardino, the big San Bernardino shooting in the US mm -hmm. where, you know, that was, you know, coming to play between 2014 and 2017, you know, we had these sort of events and they didn't, law enforcement, different parts of the Department of Defense, the government, they didn't have that capability. And so, yeah, that's, so, you know, we were the NASA people that were part of that. There were the smartest, you talk about the smartest people in the room because you're so kind. I was around other smartest peoples in the room, like my heroes in IT and tech, all of the major tech things that were developed in that time are still like being commercialized, turned into tens of billion of dollar companies today, already have been, and fundamentally changed the way that we deal with data today. And cryptocurrency, now all the Web3 stuff, you know, because we a lot of that came out of those programs too, because the bad guys were using that to have anonymized transactions and money. So not only were they doing bad things, but imagine imagine this like Star Wars saloon, you know, that's like glamorized now, where you have the aliens and bad things are happening, and Obi Wan is there. They walk in, and you know, like some of these aliens are doing bad things. Imagine a really seedy version of that. You know, where not only they're doing all these bad things like human trafficking, weapons, arms trafficking, all that, but they're paying for it using anonymized money, you know, that you can't trace or track in cryptocurrency. So it was all of those things happening and all of the work that we did on that program to kind of significantly enhance and build out technologies like Tika. We basically took Tika from like being, you know, a really fancy mid-sized sedan to a Porsche. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or a Tesla. I feel like Tesla's, I, I love them too. So. Kind of love them. We have a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's actually, that's actually really, I'm going to touch on that. Speaking of SpaceX, what, can you explain to me why all of a sudden it took, it seems like from the general public, let me start there. It seems like from the outside, it took SpaceX coming in and saying, Hey, we're not doing anything here, we need to start preparing and becoming multi multi-planetary. We see, need to start looking at humanity differently. Well, how come we haven't been back to the moon? How come we, it NASA just now, it's like, I know, I know I love, I love when they did the rocket launch and like the head of NASA comes on and he's like, we're a big part of this and all this. I'm like, listen, homie, you're a part of it, but let's <laughs> not get this twisted for two and a half seconds. You guys had decades. And Elon walks in with his cool swagger and is like, I'm going to Mars. And they're like, oh no, there's a race now. Like how come <laughs> it took so long though, right? Yeah, Kelsey, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I'll, I'll give you kind of an analogy, you know, and Elon, yeah, I love I love his swagger, you know, and all this too. And I, I, had, this, I had this image of Bill Nelson in my mind, you know, the NASA administrator when you were saying it, I was playing that in my mind. Um, my husband and I were watching and because we watch all like, I wish we had more time, but because I want to get into the new robot. I want to get into some of that. But we were watching that and we were sitting there laughing like, who are you kidding right now? 
Like, I just, I want to know who you think, I want to know who you think is believing this because if it just seems like if Elon didn't go, Hey, we're going to Mars and we're doing it seriously and watch us do it. Not only in a shorter period of time, but with like a beautiful, my God, the cabins of those rockets are like the thing of the future. And then you look at what NASA flies in and the astronauts fly. And I'm like, those poor souls. It's like the difference between a carriage and a Tesla now. Like there's, they're just so stark. And so please tell me. <laughs> so, so there's a great book out by the former deputy NASA administrator, Lori Garber. And Lori talks about this and I, and I, I lived it. I saw it. And, um, Basically, what she talks about was sort of the time around 2008, 2009, when Obama took office. And the first thing they decided, and she was part of this, and I, you know, sitting at JPL, you know, people say, oh, JPL, how is the human stuff going? How's the astronauts? I tell them, we do robots here. I always tell them <laughs> that. The other, the other NASA centers do the humans, but we like that too. And, you know, we, we certainly... And so in 2008, 2009, we always do support some of the space, I mean, the human stuff, but it's in a support role because of the right. deep space network and things like that. Um, so in 2008, 2009, when they took the SLS program, which was this, you know, the, and Constellation, which was the effort to kind of have the new shuttle. And within year one, they said they developed a new budget and Carver was the one that pushed this. She took it from 1.2 billion or 1.4 billion down to 400 million, and in the second year down to zero. You know, I tell people it's like, and and you know, it was really rah rah at the time, and it was like, oh, it's going to support Earth science. We need to focus on Earth, and and hell, that's great. I I agree. We de definitely do. Earth. The thing I tell people though is Earth is is a planet, and <laughs> you know there are other planets. You know, but yes, Earth is a planet, but um. And every dollar that you spend on space, I, this is, uh, you know, something I tell people too, it comes back fivefold, you know, back on Earth. So even investing in, in space technology, you're investing in things like, hey, do you know where that iPhone camera came from? It's a CMOS patent from JPL, Caltech. That's right. Yeah. And so I tell people that. So, but yeah, in 2008, 2009, when they basically zeroed that budget out, a lot of people at JPL lost their job. They're working on SLS and Constellation. And you got to think about that. You don't just rubber band and upskill people. This is a big issue with AI ethics nowadays. It's like, oh, we're going to replace a million truckers with, you know, smart yeah. vehicles or, or, you know, the, the answer is like, learn to code. No, 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 you don't, you don't do that. And it was the same back then. It's like, well, we're working in earth science now. So take all those space experts. And now suddenly you're going to become an expert in hyperspectral remote sensing of the earth. It doesn't work like that. And but, you know, I, so that burned me a little bit, rubbed me the wrong way. But let me tell you something, Kelsey, Lori Garber was right, specifically for the reason that you're talking about today. What that decision allowed them to do was to decide that with respect to SLS Constellation, that commercial industry was better to take that forward and could get us there faster. And that was a bet that actually succeeded. And Garber mm -hmm. talks about it in her book what Elon did, what Boeing does, you know, the big contracts that NASA, so NASA's role in this has gone from basically being the people who incepted the technology to building the technology and building the sprockets. The thing I tell people is the sprockets are buildable now. Why are we building them? Let Elon build the nice version of the space loop sprockets. And that's exactly what you're talking about. And that's, that's what he did. And 
and they're they're and they got these reusable ones that you can actually mm -hmm. re-land. And and so that's the How future. insane is that, by the yeah. way? When they oh, yeah. they're catching, like that's nuts. Yeah, absolutely. They can re-land a dragon. I mean, you know, but they I'm can re-land, you know, like it's 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 the future today. <laughs> I know it's it's a beautiful thing. It just makes me wonder, you know, if Elon didn't come around. Would this, would this have been a thing? Would we have focused at all on this? And so it's, I, I want to talk to that guy. God, everyone wants to talk to that guy, but I want to talk to that guy. I got some questions for that guy. I got a lot of different diverse questions for that guy. Um, but my, my next one for you, it obviously, I think it's, um, pretty damn cool, but everyone saw the successful land of the Mars Rover and they saw this thing happen in our lifetime that's, you know, akin to obviously people landing on the moon, but this is our version right now for now. I mean, the fact that we're going to colonize Mars, which I fully see being successful. I have a lot of questions about radiation issues, but other than that, I can see that being successful on some level, but for right now, the Mars Rover, that thing is what about the size of a VW? Yeah. The Mars Rover, the current 2012 uh, Mars Science Laboratory or Curiosity Rover and the 2020 Perseverance Rover Mars 2020. Those are about the size of a VW bug, about car size. Can you get into a little bit about how that works when you're trying to design something to go into space that you're not going to have access to fix and work on? And you're putting, I mean, you're putting all your eggs in one basket being like, hopefully one of these wires don't short. Bye. I mean, how, how do you go about building that? Because I know you're a huge part of that project. Yeah, yeah. And uh, well, um, I, we manage risk through time here. You know, NASA's the thing with, you know, Elon that he has the benefit of is if he, you know, crashes a dragon, it's a big loss and terrible and everything else, but he doesn't get dragged in front of Congress. And we do. And so we manage risk here through time and through really risk-based, you know, approaches and management to end-to-end -to -end engineering. And so, you know, we think about everything from, you know, basically planetary protection. Hey, when we have it in the clean room, so we have one of the, you know, world's best and, you know, first-class clean rooms, which are all the places people run, wear the bunny suits, they build the hardware, they suck all the particulates out, make sure that it's a very pure environment. Cause we don't, we wouldn't want to say, well, we discovered life on Mars and, you know, it came from the room at JPL, you know, it came from someone wiping their nose or something like that, you know, and um, so, so from that point of planetary protection to like having a very secure and safe environment, and when they drive, you know, the hardware around JPL, there's literally a police escort, you know, to take it from one building to the next. And this also happens at the Cape when we push that stuff out there or Vandenberg, wherever we're going to launch, launch from. And yeah, and then just thinking about the hardware itself, like you said, Kelsey, we're not going to be able to touch it again. We're not going to, you know, be able to do physical maintenance or repairs. Even on the ISS, the International Space Station, we can do stuff like that. You know, we can fix or have maintenance cycles. On Mars, we can't. And so, yeah, we have to be very, you know, it's really through tried and true expertise. The thing I tell people is JPL, right before China landed the Xirong rover, was the only nation that has successfully landed a rover and operated it on Mars, period. Um, you know, and, and more than one, you know, about half a dozen. Uh, and so, yeah, given that, you know, it, all of that expertise, you know, kind of carries forward from mission to mission. That's why we run the Mars program. That's why it's not commercially available. That's why it's decades away from people doing that.
The last thing I'll say kind of related to it is you can think about, you know, it's like you just saw relating to topical pop culture here and Tesla, because we love Tesla, um, is, uh, you know, they said they're going to recall a million Teslas recently. And you, you look and you dig down deep into that. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> no one's given their car back. What that means is they're pushing a software upgrade, you yeah. know, and yeah. And so, by the way, they're just copying JPL. We're cooler than them because we've been <laughs> doing that for decades. You we have. Just do, we just do software upgrades to the rover. So I'll give you an example, not with 2020, but with the MSL Curiosity. You can read about it. In 2014, there was an issue where it kept restarting. And we were wondering, we thought we were going to lose it. It was a intense two-month period where the first three weeks were just anomaly detection, triage, trying to figure out what the hell was going wrong. Basically, it turned out there was an issue with filling up the hard drive on the flash storage on the rover. There was a corner case that we never encountered during tests and whatever in which you know, it took too much data on the flash drive or there was something, it wasn't cleaning the data up fast enough and it filled it up. And when it filled up, it had a anomaly thing where it would reset itself and it just kept doing that. And then it would take some more data and then reset itself and get in this endless cycle. We fixed that with a software operating system patch because we write our own operating systems too here that we developed, tested here on Earth and beamed to Mars and the, you know, that rover still operating. And that's what just, we do. And that was in 2014. So. Just beamed it to Mars. That's right. We just beamed it to Mars. So we, we did a recall on the rovers too, and we patched it. So. Oh my God. The fact that we can do that in our lifetime, that was my next question. I you literally have to go and I'm aware, but I mean, this is so frustrating. Where do you see AI and this technology in the next 10 to 15 years? Because it seems like the exponential growth of it is, is really, it's, it's going to take it to a new level. And I, I can't even fathom what that's going to look like. So we, we talk about AI models with parameters. Parameters are neurons. Your brain has trillions of neurons inside of it. Um, by the way, and everyone thinks we understand the human brain, we actually understand maybe 5% of it. And yeah. um, which is a lot considering, you know, the 5%, you know, talk about motion, motor control, boy, you know, voice, thoughts, memories, you know, we, we, we focused on the important parts, but you know, 95% <laughs> of that surface, like the ocean, we don't understand. And so we are only now building neural networks and deep learning networks and basically AI machine learning models that have hundreds of billions and maybe in the next five years, trillions of parameters, you know, and the cost to build that previously were only such that, you know, the millions of dollars that it would cost tens of millions, hundreds of millions were only achievable by the big internet property companies, you know, Google, Meta, all these, uh, Amazon. And those are the only people that could have such knowledge, which is why the big focus that you see coming out of the models are those types of amazing models today are all on language. How do we understand language? How do we you know, generate text or stories or deep fakes or this doesn't exist and all of that because it's all about content and feeding the supply of web to social media and other, you know, eyeball attention based types of things. I think the next five to 10 years, we're going to see a big shift. First, more and more people, not just those companies are going to be able to generate those hundreds of billions to potentially trillions of neuron models. And they're going to do it in ways that don't just benefit attention eyeballs. They're going to do it in ways, again, that 
really disrupt parts of our lives. I think the closest one coming are those trucks in areas, not like Metro. We don't want, we don't drive big semis, you know, or in downtown LA and expect them to, you know, stop and start and all that. We want it in areas where they're traversing the Midlands or Midwest or, you know, open road. And if you look at those types of environments, these are such, you drive 18 hours, you know, wear people out. They don't make great wages. And My parents they, are long haul truck drivers, both of them. Yeah. So, you know, you think about that and, and, you know, it's like, wow, maybe they wouldn't have to, you know, the machines are good at repetitive tasks and that does have the potential to add significant value. What we need to ensure with all of these things is that the answer to your parents and others isn't well learned to code Kelsey's parents. And we have to leverage all the subject matter expert. We have to upskill people, you know, in ways that leverage their existence. And we need to pay them heartily for it. As we transition to the machines, that guru knowledge that your parents have in all of these tasks, not just trucking, but other places that it has the potential to disrupt robotic process automation in factories. Um, basically, you know, customer call centers where we don't need human beings on the phones anymore. You know, Google demonstrated a capability a couple of years ago where basically your intelligent assistant can make can handle the customer call center phone call now, direct you to service. Think about this in mental health, counseling, brown bag food programs, you know. All, those are where you will see the revolution first come. And there are also all the places that as we basically, you know, have the potential to dehumanize people and let them go and people think about, you know, profits, and hedge funds and you know coming in to squeeze the last bit of energy we have to do it in a way that doesn't involve that so you know we have to do it in a way that ethically leverages those subject matter experts and then retrains them in ways that are very beneficial to society and to them the other last thing i'll say is bias in ai and this is you know the classic example the way ai is only dependent on what it learns from and I know Microsoft put that AI Twitter bot out years ago and within 36 hours of looking at the internet, just like Ultron and Avengers A's of Ultron, it decided the human race has to die. Microsoft's Twitter bot decided in 36 hours that it would become a neo-Nazi racist, you know, internet bully and everything else just from like looking at Twitter. And, and so wow. by it, bias in data, Bias in the training data is something that we need to address. A car example, the early smart cars had never seen someone in a wheelchair before. So they didn't, you know, do things like stop when they saw them. That's, that's so important. Oh, sorry. Sorry. No that's so, that's so important that, you know, they do stop related to things like that. And they might not have seen an African-American person before because it wasn't in the training data early on or a minority or things like that. And so bias affects everything about AI and machine learning data and its training. And we need to hone in and focus on that. Well, I think you couldn't be more, uh, more accurate. That's a terrifying thought. All right, my friend, uh, this will be just one round of many. Next up, I would love to have the conversation with you about what you think and define innovation as aliens, propulsion, the Tic Tac, what's going on with JPL and all the amazing things. But for now, can you let everyone know where they can find you on social media? 
Yeah, absolutely, Kelsey. They can find me at Mattman, M-A-T-T-M-A-N-N dot A-I. That's my website. And it has links to all my socials on there. Instagram, Chris Mattman, and same on all the Twitters. It's amazing having you. Thank you so much for being here. And we will see everybody else next week.